Hey there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Seth. And I'm Zach. And we are the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's, that's, that's 150 right. episodes of Classic Gaming Brothers. Ooh, that's so exciting. <laughs> Woo! To the point that when I, after I introduced myself and you said yes. that you were Zach, I almost reintroduced myself. <laughs> <laughs> If we did that, we could have a whole episode of just us introducing ourselves for an hour. I'm Zach. I'm Seth. I'm Zach. I'm Seth. <laughs> Probably gonna be better content than most of our episodes. But not this one, because this episode's gonna be amazing. <laughs> That's right. So episode 150 is a special episode to us. I don't know why, though. For some reason... <laughs> It's the arbitrary milestone it's that true. we set for it's ourselves. It's true. It is, an, it is an arbitrary milestone. It is six episodes away from three years of Classic Gaming Brothers. Which makes it even more of a pointless number to celebrate. We're halfway to 200 if we started at 100. We're halfway to 300. Once we get to 365 episodes, you can listen to a Classic Gaming Brother, a different episode, every day of the year. Our episode 365 should be all about calendars. The calendar programs. I think that even if I had an entire day to listen to one of our episodes, I still would. <laughs> we have like three weeks preparing for this episode. I guess we had a lot longer preparing for this episode, but we had a solid three weeks where Zach and I actually seriously thought about this episode and what we were going to feature. And since we were revisiting one of our older episodes and recovering the topic, I said to myself, Maybe I should re-listen to that episode. Still haven't done it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, the same, Seth asked me before before we started recording. Seth was like, did you even listen to, to the episode that we're redoing? And I was like, I don't got time for that. <laughs> I almost did it, but I was on vacation today. So I had plenty of free time and still didn't listen to it. Nice. Well, anyway, before we get into today's topic, which is uh, returning to an old topic, uh, let's talk about games we were recently playing. Seth, do you want to go first? Sure. I have been playing Lego Brick Tales, which actually uh, was released at the day of recording, but is now out by the time of the recording, which is October 12th of 2022. Brick Tales, uh, I was playing the demo, and you play as a grandchild of an absent-minded professor-like character who may be from another Lego game, but I haven't played a lot of Lego games, so unless they're very dramatically from Lego Island, I probably don't get the references. But he's a absent-minded professor, and he has a large fro, and... 
you also, your character also has a large fro. And you have to navigate a map while helping people who are, I would say, relatively incompetent. Especially your absent-minded grandfather, he's kind of an idiot. But in order to navigate the little maps, you need to be able to build other objects. So you have to build, like, if you need to get across a river, you need to build a bridge. There's actually, in the first map, in the demo, there's a jungle. And there's an archaeologist you have to rescue who's on a balcony and you go up to the balcony to go to onto the balcony to rescue them and you can't because the balcony won't support your weight and the archaeologist's weight so then you have to build a reinforcement structure under the balcony to reinforce it so you have to build like a stack of lego bricks i was just thinking like why couldn't you just call to the archaeologist to like get off the balcony if it's already supporting their weight then just step off and come down the stairs that are attached to the balcony but anyway i didn't think too hard in regards to that but so you go through the various different maps there's secret areas that you can uncover there's collectibles like bananas that you can pick up to help you get more things unlocked and when you build you build the object so it's actually kind of cool in regards to there are some things that you build that you have to follow like a plan so there may be like a statue that you're building the exact copy of so you may have to follow the plan based on what the statue looks like uh, however there's bridges that you have to build and you don't like you could build the bridge however you want um, you're given a select number of pieces, so you kind of have to build a bridge that's probably going to look the same that other people have built. But once you build the bridge, you do unlock more pieces so you can modify your bridge. It's actually pretty fun and an enjoyable brick building mechanic. And it's a really cool way to bring the brick building mechanic into like a exploration platformer style of game. It's not really platformer. It's kind of like if Tunic was set in lego and you weren't allowed to attack anything but um it's cool that it has a actual build mechanic because i don't think any of the travelers tales games have build mechanics in them i feel like all the travelers tales are all just lego games that tell a story based on a property so yeah it's pretty cool um i have been enjoying it i like legos and but i'm not a big fan of the traveler tales lego game zach is a really big fan of them I, i'm I, I like the star wars ones those are the ones yeah. i played but i haven't played any others but don't you like collectathon games i like collectathon games but i've only played the star wars traveler's tales lego games um and the only ones i played are the gamecube ones so I haven't played like the recent Star Wars one. And I haven't really given them the time of day. I might enjoy them if I played them a lot more, but I do like the Lego Brick Tales. Uh, so I recommend you check it out if you like building things in Legos and solving problems like a bridge constructor type game. So Zach, what about you? What have you been playing? Well, Seth, recently I have been playing The Last of Us as kind of an honor to spooky season, which is what it is right now. Uh, the Last of Us is a game that I've previously played, but I played it a long time ago, back when I first got my PS4, and uh, I don't think I've talked about playing it since we've launched this podcast. The Last of Us as a game was originally released in 2013 for the PS3, though quickly a remastered version was released in 2014 for the PS4. And 
And as of this year, there is a remake of the first game available now on the PS5 and coming to Windows. The game follows the character of Joel, who is tasked with taking a young girl named Ellie through the apocalyptic wasteland to meet with a group of, uh, I would call them like revolutionaries called the Fireflies. Uh, The game takes place in a future where the world has been ravaged by a fungal infection that causes humans to turn into aggressive zombie-like creatures. This fungal infection is called the Cordyceps brain infection. Cordyceps is an actual fungus that infects ants and turns the ants into literal zombies, where the ants will be controlled by the fungus to go to the highest point of a colony, die, and then spread f- spores onto all of the all of the ants below them. It's terrifying. Uh, this is as if the cordyceps that infects ants now infects humans. Uh, there's there's three types of zombies that you encounter. There's the runners who are recently infected. There are the um, stalkers who have been infected for a few hours. There are the clickers who have been infected up to a few uh, up to a year or so. And then there's actually a, a fourth kind called the bloater. I think it's called um, who's uh, infected that's been infected for multiple years but the clickers are probably the scariest part of the game they are blind but are hypersensitive to sound so you have to be very very quiet they can sometimes hear you when you're sneaking if you sneak too quickly (laughs) so you have to be extra quiet also um, most infected will grab you and you can get away from them not clickers you need to have a shiv available on you or a knife because if you don't it will be an instant death of the clicker ripping you apart Uh, you have to have a knife and if you use the knife it doesn't necessarily kill the clicker just stuns it Um, they're very frustrating they're very spooky the game is actually really good i would call it a horror game but it's also very much like a drama in that it is very depressing and uh is very grim in terms of the storyline i don't want to give anything away but the first maybe 15 minutes of the game is probably some of the darkest imagery you'll see in a video game it's just a really depressing opening to a very depressing game and it sets up a lot for what the game's tone will be and uh, apparently part two is more of the same so i'm looking forward to playing that i'm also looking forward to the tv show which was recently announced and uh, a trailer is out starring pedro pascal as joel but i have one complaint about the last of us so the first chunk of the game, once the apocalypse starts, you, you see your, your character living in a quarantine zone in Boston. And to get to, at one point, a part of the level, you have to go to the state house and work your way through the state house, leave the state house, and then exit the city. I, I live in Boston. I work in Boston. And I've worked near the state house. And I'm familiar with the state house. They do a terrible job bringing the state house to video games in this game. Uh, they put, like, buildings in the wrong place. For some reason, the train station that is a, a bit of a walk away from the front of the state house is now directly behind it. And also, when your character like leaves the train station, uh, they're like, "Well, we're not too far from Concord." And I'm like, "That's not how that works. Like, you guys just walked into Park Street and then you walked out of Park Street. You're not near Concord now. You're still in Boston." <laughs> so I got kind of frustrated with the fact that it felt like the people were familiar with Boston probably from photos, but did not actually go to Boston. Doesn't to take place in the uh the apocalypse yeah but the apocalypse isn't going to move park street behind the state house maybe the original park street got damaged no because the the apocalypse happens so quickly that's not what happens i i will say though that fallout 4 despite not being as good of a game as last of us does a better job with boston in my opinion boston is better portrayed in fallout 4 
Uh, but Last of Us is the better game. Anyway, that's just my tangent. Uh, you know, I, I got to defend Boston when I'm here. Yeah, I feel like Fallout 4 has been out long enough that I feel like there's another Fallout that comes after Fallout 4. There is, 76. No, I, no. I. You, oh, you mean a real Fallout? Yeah, like, a, <laughs> like an actual Fallout game that came out. Like there's like a Fallout 5. Well, today's episode, we are talking about a topic we've talked about before, but back in like episode, what, three? It's also weird that Journeyman was not our first episode, <laughs> so this makes the milestone even weirder. <laughs> Journeyman was like episode three or four. Listen, we're just going to redo Journeyman annually. Perfect. Yeah, we're talking about Journeyman, or the Journeyman Project, uh, which was uh, a great game that is part of Seth in my uh, formative years in terms of our memories. Um, Seth, do you want to talk about your memories of the Journeyman Project? I actually don't have any memories of Journeyman, the Journeyman Project. I only have memories of the Journeyman Project Turbo, which arguably is just a fix to the original Journeyman Project game. But we had the Journeyman Project Turbo disc as a pack-in for our Packard Bell 486. And it was one of the included softwares that we had with our Windows 3.11 operating system, Uh, which I guess Windows 3.11 was more of a program that ran on the DOS operating system. But regardless, (laughs) it was there. I have a lot of clear memories about the game. Um, I think one of my main points of the memory was that in the Microsoft Bob version for children, the animated desktop whenever you dragged the icon which the journeyman icon in windows 3.1 was the journeyman logo which is like these three circles and they're attached to like this like plunger and whenever you start the game you could drag it to the like the launch pad where you start games and it would turn it would animate and go down into like the actual like fake operating system setup that it was and it would start and it was it was kind of cool that the icon animated very different than previous computer technology then uh, of course a lot of my memories involve the deaths uh because you could die for anything in journeyman if you essentially deviated from how the game wanted you to beat the game you died. That's just how it happened in Journeyman. And I feel like there wasn't an autosave feature. Um, so you died and you had to restart the game. Uh, if you didn't save appropriately. Generally, the tactic was to save every so many feet, like steps that you took. You had to save um, if you were playing without a guide. There were some pretty cool FMV robots that were in the game. I really liked back onto the character deaths. There was always like this still panel of how your character died, like this cartoon animation of like this character maybe being crushed by a trolley or getting vapor by going to Japan instead of work. And it was just various different ways that Gage Blackwood would end up dying. And when I was a kid, I didn't really acknowledge the satire of it all, but it is really, really funny. Like going back and playing through the game, seeing all the deaths, it's just like, oh, this is just funny and how like you die. And there was always like a little joke where it was like, you tried to talk to the robot and the robot didn't listen to you or you told the joke to the robot and it killed you. Be faster next time. And so the game was very tongue in cheek when it came in that way. Also in the Pegasus Prime, which is the rematch, of the game they put in the characters from journeyman project 2 and they were all kind of silly fmv actors uh which was great to be included because my all-time favorite memory of the journeyman project is 
Agent 5, who in the second game gets to be called Gage Blackwood, is the reluctant hero of the game, but he's a chronically tardy and nobody expects him to actually amount to anything but yet he works at a like a governmental agency that protects the timeline so it's kind of like a pretty important role but yet everyone that he works with thinks that he's just incompetent zach what about your um memories of the journeyman project well with a lot of games my memories uh, mostly come from the fact that i am your brother i don't remember ever playing journeyman um i remember watching you play journeyman i remember some of the fmv sequences nothing in particular but like if you showed me an fmv sequence today i would be like oh yeah i remember that and i also remember where you have to stop an assassin at one point uh, which i think is from the first game uh, and you have to like stop him from killing someone on mars or is it a martian ambassador or it's like a yeah so you have to stop him from killing the martian ambassador and they're on caldoria caldoria which is a flying city ship yeah it's like a robot assassin right no the actual assassin is a time terrorist and he is going to kill the martian because he thinks that the martians have caused this big issue he sends three robots into the past to cause chaos and to break the timeline. One of the robots goes back to Mars and is messing around with something. I know one of them goes to an underwater station and is just launching nuclear warheads. As one does. The second one pretends to be the guy or he goes as undercover as somebody. He shapeshifts. The second one can shapeshift and shapeshifts to look like I feel like he looked like the assassin, like the guy who is the assassin. And then he unshapeshifts and becomes a robot. But this robot then shoots a guy and then turns and shoots you with poison that you have to cure yourself. Right. Okay. You see, a lot of this is like coming back to me. I just. Yeah. The Martian one, I think, was just making the Martian station explode. He was just like caught, like causing it to shut down. He was a big, the big blue one that would like just throw throw you and he'd like walk by and just like stare at you and you have to hide it was for sure an interesting plot you can actually get that scene all the way to the end because if you go and stop the the assassin from killing the martian ambassador you could just not stop him and then he turns and just shoots you and you can get your final death scene which i don't know why you wouldn't shoot him because you you have a gun at that point and you can blast him and you shoot him instead and then everyone's like gage you did something for once being late paid off yeah, and then the second game, he's just um, under, uh, he's he's a wanted man. The second one's also kind of weird. In our original Journeyman episode, we talk a lot about the weirdness of Journeyman. Yeah. That I remember. And we'll probably talk a little bit more about the weirdness of Journeyman. But in this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about the history of the company, Presto Studios, which is a, an important signifier because I right. don't think we talked about Presto Studios when I don't we think did so the original episode. I, no. I think we just talked primarily about how weird Journeyman is. Yeah. But so this one, we'll, we'll give a little more history on, on Presto Studios itself. Yeah. And to get into the history, the Journeyman project was developed by a small game company called Presto Studios, uh, which was originally founded in 1992 in San Diego, California. According to the Journeyman Project website, which is still up, 
The company was founded by Michelle Cripolani, uh, and per the company's own website, the group was primarily made up of like pairs of friends who were what they quote unquote called closet intellectuals and would often be quote found rolling up D&D characters in the locker halls between classes and quote playing the latest Apple II game after school. So these were nerds and uh, these were nerds that were friends with each other throughout high school and throughout college Uh, but they were like separate nerd groups. These people didn't know all of each other together. Michelle knew uh, a guy named Dave and then there was uh, a Jose who knew a guy named Farshid. So like these people knew each other. They just didn't know each other collectively. Well, that changed. After college, this individual friend group formed a larger group and Michelle began to work for a multimedia production company. And around this time, he got really frustrated with working for a corporation that wasn't doing the things that he wanted to do. And he wanted to do something that he thought was more fulfilling. So his roommate at the time, Dave Flanagan, and him joined up with Farshid Almasazadeh and Jose Albanil to hone their skills into a potential business. Their skills being they were all into programming and art. Uh, They all did digital artwork at the time. Now, toward the tail end of 1999, the CD-ROM adventure genre was really getting started. A game called Spaceship Warlock was out, which is cited as being one of the first CD-ROM adventure games, but also a major inspiration for Michelle. As the game was released by a very small group of people under the name Reactor. Uh, In fact, Reactor was referred to by the Journeyman website as being a garage company, a company that was like pretty much out of someone's garage at the time. Michelle and Dave Flanagan started bouncing ideas back and forth about a potential game that they could make. And they recruited their friends, and Farshid to help them with developing a time travel based game. So Michel would go on to contact a colleague of his, Greg Uller, and ask him to come on board. And from there, they were able to start work on a demo with the goal of getting it ready for Macworld 92. Macworld was a big deal back in the early 90s. Per their website, Michel and his team barely had enough money to get to Macworld, like physically get there, not just being able to have a booth or exhibit space, but they had to carpool and they actually ended up sharing a booth with a friend of theirs, Mike McNeil, who owned Club Mac. On top of that, the demo wasn't completed and Greg actually worked all night to finish it before the first day of the conference. The demo seemed to do well, so the team decided that it was time to make things official. Everyone quit their day jobs. While they couldn't afford to give anyone salaries, they started to take on more staff. With friends filling in roles as accounting, distribution, public relations, and other facets of running an actual company. The uh, initial team of Presto consisted of Michelle Cripolani, who acted as project coordinator, 3D artist, and programmer. Greg Oler, who was the lead programmer and 2D artist. Farshid Almashizadi, the lead animator and also programmer. Phil Saunders, who did conceptual design. Dave Flanagan, who was the writer and programmer. Jose Albanil, the lead 3D modeler. Eric Hook, who did public relations and was also doing 3D artistry. Gino Andrews, who was the audio sculptor and 2D artist and Jack Davies the art director and lead artist. And remember, these these guys couldn't afford to pay anyone's salaries. So from my understanding, a lot of it was based on like, we'll pay you back when we can. Now, as the team had grown to be decently sized, uh, they needed to kind of expand out of what was a 
house that they were working in. So they rented a second house. Uh, This new house had a swimming pool and the only working television of the two houses. And this second house became the party house. The first house would retain all of their computers, with the website describing it as looking as kind of like the inside of a Borg ship due to the, the sheer amount of networking cables required to keep everyone connected at all times. But the second house was where you went to relax because it was located at the end of the street. And the first house was called Presto North and the second house was called Presto South. And apparently these early days were very chaotic. Gino was apparently a fan of skateboarding and he would do so around the house uh and the afternoons were often filled with basketball hacky sack and the occasional roof dive into the pool and i assume drinking was involved but the website never said drinking was involved but it certainly sounds like it was or other things the chaos however was cut between 16 hour work days which they needed to do so they could make careful use of the loan money that they were being provided it's also noted at one point that meals were so tight for staff that the idea of a gourmet meal was that Gino would add garlic and oregano to the macaroni and cheese, and this was called Gino-roni. Through their time, the team was working on building out the world of Journeyman, which meant going over various new ideas, rejecting things that didn't work well with the overall game, and tuning things to perfection. The goal was to get the Journeyman project to be ready by January of 1993 in time for Macworld. This would also mean that they would need to have the game's sent to duplication by Christmas of 1992. It's described via the website that this was a grueling period of time, as no one at Presto thought they would make it for their deadline, but they did, and the game was shipped for duplication on Christmas Eve of 1992. Macworld loomed, and the printed discs hadn't yet arrived, but luckily on January 6, 1993, Just as some of the staff were checking into the hotel, a truck arrived with all of the Journeyman Project discs ready to go. And I don't know if the original Journeyman Project discs looked like the Journeyman Project Turbo discs. They are a thing. They just have a picture of a man on them, and he looks like he's wearing like like a jumpsuit, and he's got his eye thing, because in Journeyman, the game takes place in the HUD, and your character wears an eye implant thing over his eye, like a, oh, like yeah. a, like a monocle. I know the exact disc you're talking about. And I'm pretty sure he's the only one that wears the monocle in the game. Like, even when they added the new um, movie people, like the FMV actors in, I don't think anyone else wears them. I feel like Gage is just the guy who, like, early adopted the Google Glass. <laughs> and that's, like, the how he's like, goes around with that. But yeah, so I hope those are what the discs looked like. I'm not sure, personally. I, I looked up a picture of the original disc just now, and the only disc that showed was version 1.2, which which was before Turbo, and that just had the logo on it, like the the symbol. Damn, because those that that Turbo disc is pretty mint. I also like that the Gage Blackwood that was printed on the disc looks nothing like the Gage Blackwood that they would go on to use as an actor. I love it when that happens. Anyway, let's talk about the storyline and a bit of the gameplay. Journeyman Project is a first-person adventure game. I would say kind of similar to Myst in the sense that it is first-person, but you're not, like, free-roaming as you would in Myst. Uh, you're just kind of, well, you're kind of free-roaming, but it's not the same as what you'd expect in, like, a first-person shooter. The game is set in the far future where Earth has been united under a global community of peace. A scientist discovers the secret to time travel 
but the machine is put under government control to prevent tampering with the timeline. As the first alien delegation is visiting Earth, the Temporal Security Agency, or TSA, detects multiple temporal disturbances that have altered history. It's your job, as Agent 5, to fix the altered timeline. In the game, you must move around in a fixed-person perspective and interact with various buttons and objects on the screen and in the world around you. And you solve various puzzles and, essentially, try to stop the bad guy who uh, has altered time and you try to restore the future. What I liked about the gameplay of Journeyman is that there was a... um, illusion of choice in the regards of like how you could progress through the game um so like when the timeline deviates they're like you have to go to this time first you have to go back to the dinosaur age to collect the cd-rom of history because that's like this dvd that has all of history you just grab that out of the dinosaur vault you bring it back and you're like ah yes here is history on this dvd and you just put the dvd in i assume it's a dvd could be a cd but uh i would hope that all of history takes up more room than a cd so that and then you get to play back the differences and then you get to choose which time zone you go to first so you can either deal with the nukes the martian or i guess it's not he's not a martian he's a robot on mars you can either go to the mars base you can go to the underwater base or you can go to the the symposium conference i love having the options of going to space underwater or the symposium (laughs) or the or the conference about biology um so I thought that was kind of cool that you could deal with whichever robot you wanted to deal with first. That's kind of cool. And then the timeline reverts as you uh, as you fix it. So to go to talk about the numbers, the Journeyman Project sold around 150,000 copies on release, and by July of 1996, the entire series had sold around 500,000 units. When the game was initially released, it originally retailed for around $90, with per sale profit about half for Presto. The overall budget for the game was around $70,000. Reviews at the time were very, very favorable. At a 1993 Computer Gaming World review said it was visually stunning. Stunning, though it did mention that the game was difficult. However, the re- reviewer clarified the difficulty was rewarding after puzzling past each conundrum. In the magazine Mac user, it was named one of the top 50 CD-ROMs of 1995. And to be honest, the graphics for the game still hold up pretty well. Yeah, I um, think so. They hold up in a way that all of those games where you're kind of going through a slideshow walking adventure, essentially what it is. Any of those games where you go through where it's like a slideshow and you click and you go through the different areas all tend to be pretty graphically well done because you're just going through pictures that are interactive. But uh, ultimately, Journeyman still holds up in, uh, in regards to graphical fidelity and is still like playable today. I would recommend the Pegasus Prime remaster versus the original game since the original game I think you still have to run at a small resolution and you don't have silly FMV characters in them and I mean, let's be real. FMV characters just add so much more to it. Now, Seth, I did some napkin math. I wanted to take a look at something. I wanted to see how Presto did. So they sold 150,000 copies of Journeyman, which is pretty dang good. So 150,000 units, 90 bucks a pop. And because Presto was the self-publisher, they took half of a per sale profit. They were able to take $45 or so off that 90 bucks, meaning they made $6.75 million. off a journeyman project through those first initial sales and that's not including like you know the five hundred thousand that they ended up selling of the complete series presto made bank 
on Journeyman, considering that the game only cost them 70000 So after they paid off their loans, they still probably had a couple mil in the bank. And you know what? That means sequels were inevitable. However, before the sequels, Journeyman had I had to go through a couple revisions. The first Journeyman game had a ton of re-releases. Uh, the first version came out in 93 and was self-published and was available for the Macintosh. A second version was version 1.1, released at the same year uh, and contained numerous bug fixes. A third version, version 1.2, also came out the same year and provided additional performance upgrades. Following this, uh, the Journeyman Project MPC version 1.0 released for Windows 3.1. In 1994, the game saw a unified release for both Mac and Windows as the Journeyman Project Turbo, which offered major speed improvements. That's why it was Turbo. <laughs> yes, because one of the issues that the game suffered from was it heavily relied on the program Macromedia Director, which caused massive slowdowns on your system. So Turbo, they were able to be less reliant on director and overall fix some performance by like tenfold. The game plays much better than the original release. After Turbo, a sequel was released in 1995 called The Journeyman Project 2 Buried in Time. This was published by Sanctuary Woods and made some significant changes, such as naming Agent 5 officially as Gage Blackwood and giving him a personality. <laughs> Not a good one. No, but he didn't really have one in Journeyman Project 1 besides the fact that he's chronically late for work. That is true. He does get, he's surprisingly competent at his job. That's true. They also decided to improve performance overall in the game by writing it in C++. Journeyman Project 2 also introduced Arthur, the AI, and he's a he's a chip in journeyman project 2 because in the journeyman project in order to get extra abilities you get extra chips in the same in journeyman journeyman 1 and journeyman 2 you find chips and then you just slot them in your chip thingy and in journeyman project 2 one of those extra chips is arthur who's an artificial intelligence who's kind of annoying and don't worry he comes back <laughs> and in fact in journeyman project three he gets his own little section of your hud <laughs> oh yay so after buried in time in 1997 uh the first game was completely remade as the journeyman project pegasus prime which brought in the fmv actors and brought in a reason why gage blackwood was chronically late for work he was apparently sleeping with a reporter and she left him a voicemail that was like, I had a great time. Now I have to go learn about the Martians or something. <laughs> Because the Martian, she was covering the embassy, the Martian visiting. Apart from her saying that she had a great time spending the night, there was just other voicemails about him being really late and just being bad at his job. The third and final game gets released in 1998. It's Journeyman Project 3, Legacy of Time. I have to say something about the second game, though. And it's kind of like the first game, which I don't think we touched on in either of these episodes. So the first game, yeah. you travel back in time and you have to go in a time machine. Mm -hmm. And it is a massive machine that like spins up and like spins around. It's got weird psychedelic like yeah. imagery. Yeah, there's like claws and all sorts of things. But the thing is like the size of a room, right? It's not portable. Right. And you have to climb into it. Then you climb out of it and you just run around in your jumpsuit essentially. And you just can't be seen by anybody because you're a guy running around in a jumpsuit, right? You violate the time continuum the second game changes that gage blackwood 
gets a time suit, which looks like, I want to say a gigantic gray cocoon that you can wear with like a cocoon with arms. He's like Metapod with arms. That's in two. And they have a portable time machine and he can run around and jump through it. But I don't, it still looks like a gigantic gray space suit that he's wearing so you can't be seen by anyone in buried in time enter the third and final game legacy of time you get a chameleon suit which allows you to change your look but you could only change your look to people that you have seen so you can't look like a generic nondescript band you have to see somebody from the distance change to look at like them and then proceed to go through beyond that and having a dedicated spot for arthur the journeyman project 3 legacy of time really does change from the, the previous two games it still feels like a journeyman game but also not like a journeyman game it uses pre-rendered cgi graphics it was released on dvd rom which was pretty big like it's a pretty big deal back in 1998 there was also cd-rom version as uh four separate cd-roms one of the issues though that make it less of a journeyman project game was in the journeyman project turbo and journeyman project 2 buried in time the plot was a scientific time terrorist plot and the locations that you went to were in the future like you went to a symposium in the year 2173 you went to a martian base in 2148 like you just went to arbitrary times and apart from going to the dinosaur era you didn't really experience history buried in time i think does something similar i think you still go into the future times it's been a while since i've actually played buried in time i've played pegasus Prime and Legacy of Time more recently than Buried in Time. But Buried in Time, I still think is more like future destinations. Enter Legacy of Time, where you only go to history locations and the game teaches you history. And the game goes from like this sci-fi thriller adventure game to uh, the Oregon Trail in the past. <laughs> it's like a mech game. It really does become like a mech game where you're they're like teaching you about the Roman aqueducts and stuff like that. I'm like, what? what is going on here? I'm not being threatened by robots. There isn't like a robot trying to shoot off nuclear war and start World War III in the year 2172. Like, what is going on? This guy wants to tell me how brass was made in the freaking <laughs> Roman era. I'm like, Arthur, shut up and bring back the robots the worst thing is when a game becomes an educational game but it's a surprise <laughs> education that's right that's and like if you look at the box art of all of them the box art for legacy in time looks like it's still gonna be a pretty fun time no it's an education game i mean i like legacy in time but i like legacy in time as much as i like the search for cetus all three of the journeyman games are available on gog or good old games outside of journeyman presto would go on to work on a number of projects such as stephen king's f-13 gundam 0079 the war for earth star trek hidden evil whacked and Miss Three Exile, which I also owned. And I don't know if I actually knew that Presto worked on Miss Three Exile. I owned because I also liked Mist and Riven, and Miss Three was the sequel to Riven, which was the sequel to Mist. And uh, I thought it was done by Cyan, but I guess it wasn't. And the saddest thing is that uh, Presto did eventually shut their doors in 2002, pretty much just after they released the game Whacked for the Xbox. All right, well, that will do it for Journeyman, our Journeyman Redux. Uh, we're now going to get into our Retro Rewind. So starting off, Seth, 
I'm going to go first. I'm going to swap it up. Seth had me play Manic Miner for the ZX Spectrum, or the ZX Spectrum, if you would. Manic Miner originally came out in 1983 and was released by Bug Bite, which was an Oxford-based company, which was primarily about one or two people from what I read. Uh, the entire game was programmed by Matthew Smith, not to be confused with the 11th actor to play the Doctor, Matt Smith. Manic Miner is a pretty fun game, uh, arguably a bit dated. The ZX Spectrum was not a very powerful machine, so the game isn't really able to make use of a ton of music. In fact, at the time, it was considered abnormal for Spectrum games to have music, so Manic Miner was considered an exception. I, I will say, though, that the game is very colorful. Um, so that's something I think every Spectrum game has kind of going for it, is that the, the use of colors is always really interesting to see how they do it, because the color palette for the Spectrum is very limited. In the game, you play as Miner Willy, who must travel through the various caverns before he runs out of oxygen. Uh, you have to collect various items like keys and avoid various enemies like a, a mining robot. So how does Manic Miner hold up? Well, it's hard to say. Uh, I did not grow up with a ZX Spectrum, so I'm not super nostalgic for the game, and I wasn't able to get really into it. I definitely see the appeal in it. It's it's kind of like a classic platformer that suffers from some tight controls that I couldn't personally get past. But if you're nostalgic for 8-bit computer games and you're familiar with the Spectrum, uh, you'll probably still uh, enjoy Manic Miner if you are familiar with it. There is actually a sequel called Jet Set Willy, um, which is also supposed to be pretty fun. I didn't get a chance to play that, but uh, I've heard good things about it, so maybe I'll give it a shot. Next week, Seth, I want you to play a game from the 1980s. I want you to play a game called Air Traffic Controller for DOS. That sounds like an exciting game to play. It's going to be very exciting, I think. So, Zach had me play... Spider-Man for the PlayStation 1 or the N64. It's an action platformy type game where you play as Spider-Man. And you beat up bad guys and you fight bosses that are Spider-Man villains. The PlayStation has in-game cutscenes, while the N64 has comic book panels. I'm more nostalgic for the comic book panels because I actually played the N64 Spider-Man game when I was a child, whereas I did not play the PlayStation Spider-Man game. For an N64 superhero game, which there are many of, of different varying quality, it does a pretty good job at giving you the uh, agency of being Spider-Man. Uh, you can swing around, you can climb walls, you can web up villains, you punch people, you make Rhino run into like electrical things, you fight all of those guys. It just it does a really good job at being like an actual superhero game. Unlike, like, you know, Superman. Also, what I enjoyed was the N64 and the PlayStation 1 had really poor draw distance, especially for the Spider-Man game. So there was a lot of fog because that's what happens when it's not drawn. It's just fog. So instead of dealing with that, they decided to embrace it. And they said, actually, Dr. Octopus teams up with Carnage and they released a giant fog that blankets the city. And that's why there's bad draw distance. It's the fog from Dr. Octopus. So if you're nostalgic for a, a superhero game on the 64-bit era of video game consoles that isn't trash, then Spider-Man is definitely better an alternative to Superman. Uh, it holds up. I think it does hold up. And it's a, it's a pretty fun action style game. A lot of punching and kicking and all that jazz. Anyway. If you enjoyed today's episode and you maybe want to hear us do a redux of other classic, classic Gaming Brothers episodes, let us know. If you want us to do Journeyman again, 
Let us we'll know. just keep doing Journeyman. 250 Journeyman. 350 Journeyman. 450 Journeyman. Anyway, you can email us at classicgamingbrothers at gmail.com with any recommendations or comments or questions that you have. You can also reach out to us via our Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, or Twitter. Our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitch are Classic Gaming Brothers. Our Twitter is CG Brothers Pod. By the way, we haven't streamed a while on, on Twitch, but be on the lookout because we might be streaming again soon for a very long time. Uh, as in 24 hours straight. Uh, more on that later. Be sure to visit our website and uh, listen to our podcast wherever podcasts can be found. And uh, beyond that, that's all I have to say. Seth, do you have anything you want to contribute? Don't play games like my brother. And don't play games like my brother. I've been Seth. And I've been Zach. And we've been the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's, that's right. right.